Welcome to my weekly Parsha Shir. Today, for Parsha's Koirach, we're going to look into the troubling narrative of Koirach's rebellion against Moshe Rabbeinu and against Arna Koin. The Koirach rebellion marked the first significant, unambiguous challenge to Moshe's leadership, and the Torah devotes a tremendous amount of attention to it, clearly because there are many lessons embedded in the story that the Torah wants us to learn. The suppression of Korach's insurgency served not only to re-establish, but it also reaffirmed Moshe's leadership as he guided his people through the wilderness. I want to focus on a particularly remarkable chazal that I saw mentioned in the book of Droshas called Derashot Ledorot by the late Rabbi Norman Lamb. Rabbi Lamb is mainly remembered and recalled as the head of Yeshiva University, a position he held for decades. But he was also actually one of the great rabbinic darshonim in America of the last generation. I heard him speak several times over the years, and he was a superlative speaker, original, engaging, and always thought-provoking. The chazal quoted by Rabbi Lam is taken from the Yalkut Ruveni, which is a collection of Kabbalistic midrashim put together by Rav Avram Ruven Akoin Soifer, a 17th century rabbi from Prague, who was the grandson of Rabbi Ephraim of Lunshitz, the Kliyokor. According to this astounding chazal, quoted by the Yalkut Ruveni, the battle between Moshe and Korach was not actually a new battle. In fact, it was a reiteration of a very ancient conflict, the fight between Cain and Abel, found at the beginning of the book of Bereshus. According to this Chazal, Moshe represents the Abel, the Hevel character, and Korach is Cain. Although, unlike the original fight, in the case of Moshe and Korach, it is Hevel who gets the better of Cain and not the other way around. I'll get back to that in a few moments. But first, let's get to the details of Korach's attempted rebellion and the comparison with the Cain and Hevel story. How exactly does this whole thing play out? Truthfully, if you take a closer look at the two biblical dramas and you try and find parallels, you will soon be able to see the striking similarities between the characters involved. There are at least three elemental aspects which bridge the gap between Korach and Cain. The first of these is Kinnah which means jealousy or envy. Cain's fratricidal act against Hevel came about as a result of his envy of the fact that Hevel had found favour in God's eyes. Now put your Korach story hat on. Does it sound familiar? Yes, it does sound familiar because it is familiar. A similar sentiment was exactly what prompted Korach's ill-fated rebellion. Both Moshe and Korach, as members of the same tribe, Levi, could be thought of as kind of brothers. In other words, although they were cousins, they were roughly the same age and were close in a family sense. And yet, while Moshe was the people's unchallenged leader, Korach, his equal, as it were, was not. So guess what happened? Korach was engulfed by the flames of envy, which ultimately led to his downfall. He was consumed by the literal fires of God's anger. Kinnah is the first connection between Cain and Korach. The second connecting element is what we refer to in Hebrew as Tava, which means desire, or more accurately, 
an insatiable appetite for more. No matter what you have, you still want more. That's Tava. According to the Medrash Rabbah, Cain and Hevel divided the world equally, and yet, despite owning half the world, Cain still wanted his brother's share. What he had himself was not enough. That was why he killed Hevel, the Medrash tells us. And the same thing was with Kairach. According to the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Tes Omud Aleph, Kairach was one of the richest people who ever lived, richer than Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and the Sultan of Brunei combined. The Gemara tells us that he found a huge treasure that Joseph had hidden in Egypt, like Alibaba's, Alibaba's cave. And that was how he acquired his massive wealth. Korach's fortune was so vast that it took 300 mules just to carry all the keys to his treasure houses. Can you imagine that? And yet, he still wasn't satisfied. His enormous wealth was not enough. He also wanted what Moshe had. He wanted everything that there was to have, not just what he already had, and that is what led him down the dangerous path which ultimately ended in his demise, which is the second connection between Cain and Korach. And now for the third connection between Cain and Korach. Both Cain and Korach had an insatiable longing for covered, for honour and recognition. Cain who was the older brother, saw Hevel's distinction in God's eyes as an insult against his seniority, a blow to the honour he believed he was due. Korach was the same. He also yearned for recognition he felt was his due. And when he didn't get it, because Moshe was the top man and not him, this left him deeply disgruntled. This idea is vividly expressed in the first public accusation Korach levied against Moshe. On what basis do you presume to raise yourselves over the congregation of God? In other words, Korach was saying, you don't belong in that elevated position. I do. The people in the world who embody kindness, righteousness and goodwill, people like Hevel and Moshe, must always be ready to contend with malcontents, with those who are perpetually unsatisfied, with people who relentlessly try and take more than their fair share. As the Mishnah teaches us in Ovis, Hakina hatava v'hakovoid, Envy, desire and a yearning for honour drive a person out of the world. And we see how this happened in both stories. Cain was ejected from his world, sentenced to perpetual wandering, unable to claim any place as his own or to identify a house as his home. And Korach was also expelled from existence, swallowed up by the earth and erased from the world. And let's be very honest with ourselves here. The conflict between Moshe and Korach is not an episode that is confined to ancient history. Yes, of course it happened then, but it's also happening right now. We see it all the time. It is a universal drama as old as mankind itself, and it never ends. As long as there are individuals who seek more for themselves than they deserve, or than they have, there will be others who fall prey to their terror and victimization. The narratives of Cain and Korach offer us a Torah perspective into the personality of the aggressor. But there's that lingering question that demands our attention. I, I already alluded to it earlier on. 
If the story of Moshe and Korach was simply a replay of the age-old drama of Cain and Hevel, why do the outcomes diverge so drastically? Why does Hevel fall prey to Cain in the original story, while Moshe, representing Hevel, emerges victorious over Korach, who is Cain's avatar? Why does virtue suffer defeat in one scenario and celebrate triumph in the other? It's a good question, right? Before we answer the question, I want to point out something else that Cain and Korach shared in common. The art of deception. They were both conmen. Do you know why? Because they knew exactly how to hide their vile intentions by shrouding them in piety. And that's how they got away with it. Everything they did, everything they said, they said they were doing for the greater good of others. They were, or at least they appeared to be, the frumest of the frum. That's the common thread in both narratives, the skillful masking of self-serving, egoistic and aggressive intentions behind a facade of nobility, goodness and decency. As the saying goes, even the devil can cite scripture for his purpose and aggressors often style themselves as the champions of peace. Cain was motivated by purely selfish desires, but he did not openly declare his intentions. As I already said, Metrish Rabbah tells us that Cain and Hevel divided the world in such a way that Hevel received all the movable objects while Cain owned all the land. Cain defended his claims against his brother using the banner of justice and righteousness. He told him, excuse me, Mr. Hevel, you're standing on my land. Get off my land. And if you continue to trespass on my land, I will be forced to protect my rights against you. What's troubling is this. If you want to be strictly legal, Cain was within his rights. He seems to have justice on his side, but we know the truth. His fight with Hevel had nothing whatsoever to do with what he was saying. It wasn't about Hevel standing on his land. It was all about jealousy and about wanting something that Hevel had that he didn't have. Cain just concealed his real intentions under the guise of laws and rights. He was an out-and-out -out crook who pretended to be upright. Korach was exactly the same as Cain. He replicated Cain's strategy down to a T. He did not brazenly announce that his rebellion against Moshe and Aaron was a power grab, a coup d'etat that was only happening to satisfy his hunger for power and influence. Of course he didn't. Instead, under the cover of a facade of devoutness and piety, he decried Moshe and Aaron, proclaiming, On what basis do you presume to raise yourselves over the congregation of God? Do you not understand, he declared to Moshe and Aaron, that all these people are holy, not just you two? Korach positioned himself as a great democrat, as a noble defender of the people. What a liar. What a phony. Chazal also tell us that Korach attempted to portray Moshe and Aaron as tyrants who were exploiting the people for personal gain and advantage. He cast himself as the advocate of the common man against the so-called tyranny of Moshe. But that's just another tactic that people like Korach use. It's called projection. You tell people that your opponents are power-grabbing phonies when that is exactly what you are yourself. Kol ha-poysel Both Cain 
and Korach cloak them their true motives of envy, hunger for power, and the pursuit of honour beneath a pretense of righteousness. They both embody the essence of hypocrisy. And, says Rabbi Lamb, this duality explains the peculiar grammatical anomaly found in both narratives, namely a verb that is missing an object. In the story of Cain and Hevel, we read as follows, Vayome Cain el Hevel Ochiv, Vayhi biyoysom basode, Vayokom Cain el Hevel Ochiv, Vayahargeil. And Cain spoke to Hevel, his brother, and it was one that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Hevel, his brother, and he killed him. As you may have noticed, there's something missing in that sentence. In between Vayomer Kain el Hevel Ochiv and Vayihibi Yosem Basoda, it doesn't tell us what Kain said to his brother. It's as if the dialogue has been erased from the script. We know Kain said something, but the text is silent about what words he said. The verb Vayomer is missing an object. And weirdly, there's something very similar in the Korach narrative. The text begins Vayikach Korach, and Korach took. But we're never told who or what he took. It's left totally vague, as if it's been airbrushed out of the narrative. The verb vayikach is missing an object. Perhaps these intriguing verb constructions convey a profound message about the protagonists of the story, despite the reasons they provided for what they were doing, and notwithstanding the words they uttered and the facades they adopted. The excuses manufactured by Cain and Korach were essentially vacuous, insignificant and unworthy of our attention. We, the reader, didn't need an object to be attached to Cain's Vayomer. Whatever he said had no real relevance. His words were just a mask for his deceit and hypocrisy. Similarly, whatever it was that Korach said and who he took was equally trivial. The object of his Vayikach is irrelevant because his actions were ultimately purely driven by an insatiable lust for power. And it was this that led him to deceive and nearly annihilate his entire tribe. It is this hidden, unspoken, yet profoundly evil intention that is concealed beneath a mantle of piety that truly matters. The rest of it doesn't merit documentation in the Torah. I mean, who cares? And it is this distinction which clarifies for us why Moshe emerged triumphant, whereas Hevel fell prey to his antagonistic brother. Our readings of the Torah and Medrash provide no evidence of Hevel resisting Cain assertively. Maybe he tried to counter Cain's claims on Cain's self-declared terms, and he tried to answer his spurious arguments with legal rebuttals and logic. But confronting malevolence on its own terms is a guaranteed path to defeat. You can't argue with a cheat and a liar. It's impossible to gain the upper hand. But Moshe had absorbed this lesson from the story of Cain and Hevel. He didn't waste time with Korach. He dismissed Korach's grievances and exposed the true motives behind their deception. He spoke to Korach and his supporters, but he was really addressing everyone else all the onlookers from among the wider nation. Shimu na Levi, hear now, sons of Levi. Hama'at mikem ki hivdil eloke Yisrael eschem me'adas Yisrael. Is it trivial for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel? Ubi kashtem gam kahuna? Do you also need to seek the priesthood? 
Moshe didn't pull his punches, and he didn't even address the so-called bid for democracy by the rebels. He went ahead and stripped away their sanctimonious pretenses, revealing to the people the rebels' true desire. They wanted unbridled power. He then cautioned the people, separate yourselves from this gang of malcontents and fakers. Moshe Rabbeinu learned from the Kain and Hevel saga, and we, in turn, must learn from the Korach and Moshe narrative. We need to remain unswayed by hypocritical piety, for such piety is fraudulent, a pretense put out by its perpetrators to trick us and lull us into believing in them. And another thing, evil should never be engaged in debate. It should simply be exposed and unmasked. This is a powerful lesson. It truly transcends time, and it is pertinent in all walks of life. I'm sure you can think of plenty of permutations that are relevant to your life and others which are plain to see in the world around us, which is why, to ensure our survival, whether it is physically, morally, or spiritually, we must persistently seek out and uphold the truth with all the strength at our disposal. There are countless examples from much more recent history of this egregious phenomenon. I'll give you a couple of examples. In the 17th century, the French statesman and clergyman, Cardinal Richelieu, known as L'Eminence Rouge, the Red Eminence, used his position within the Catholic Church to manipulate religious sentiment for political gain. He sought to centralize power in France under the monarchy and to undermine the influence of rival factions, including the Protestant Huguenots and the nobility. Richelieu skillfully played both sides of religious conflicts, presenting himself as a defender of Catholicism while also forming alliances with Protestant powers when it suited his political goals. He was a shameless bounder, and in his efforts to consolidate power, Richelieu employed ruthless tactics to suppress his opponents. He established a network of spies and informants to gather intelligence and identify those who posed a threat to his authority. Richelieu used this information to orchestrate the persecution and execution of his enemies, including nobles who challenged his policies or were suspected of plotting against him. Richelieu also implemented policies that allowed him to accumulate significant wealth. He imposed heavy taxes on the French population, particularly the nobility, to fund his military campaigns and political ventures. Richelieu's financial practices were marked by corruption and embezzlement. But all along, he strategically employed religious language and positioned himself as a devout defender of Catholicism to garner support and to justify his actions. Richelieu emphasized his role as a cardinal and presented himself as a faithful servant of the church using religious rhetoric to advance his political agenda. Another example of this horrific phenomenon was a man called Grigory Rasputin. 
In the early 20th century, during the ill-fated reign of the last Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II, Rasputin gained influence over the Russian royal family by presenting himself as a holy man of the Russian Orthodox Church, who had supernatural healing powers. However, behind his spiritual facade, Rasputin led a life of debauchery and excess. He was promiscuous, a raging alcoholic, and he indulged in every kind of vice, often using his connections with powerful individuals to protect himself from the consequences. In particular, Rasputin exploited his relationship with Tsarina Alexandra, who believed him to possess religiously, religiously powered healing abilities that could help her hemophiliac son, Tsarevich Alexei. Rasputin gained her trust and influenced her decision-making, which led to him having significant political influence in the Russian court. And like Richelieu, Rasputin accumulated significant wealth through bribery and extortion. He often accepted monetary and material gifts from those seeking his favor or influence over the royal family. Rasputin leveraged his position as a spiritual advisor to demand financial compensation and gifts from wealthy individuals. In 1916, he came to a grisly end, murdered by a group of Russian nobles who feared that he would bring down the Russian monarchy, which collapsed soon afterwards, probably partly as a result of Rasputin's malign influence, which had corroded the royal family and led it down the wrong path. Unless you think that this ugly phenomenon doesn't occur closer to home, how wrong you are. There is the dreadful, very recent story of Rabbi Eliezer Berland, a fraudster rabbi who held sway and continues to hold sway over thousands of Breslov Hasidim in Israel and even beyond. He has been accused and convicted of crimes of sexual misconduct and assault, and shockingly, he is admitted to ordering murder. Berland's horrendous crimes occurred over a period of many years and all of them were made possible as a result of him being considered a great rabbi. He actively presented himself as a holy man, as an ascetic who was spiritually superior to everyone else. Former followers have spoken out about the psychological and emotional control exerted by Rabbi Berland and his inner circle emphasizing the detrimental impact on their lives and all of it was because they thought he was holy and special. In reality, Berland was a fraud and a criminal, a Kayin and a Koirach, someone who pretended and continues to pretend to be something he isn't. The Rambam insists, as one of his 13 articles of faith, that we must believe that Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest prophet who ever lived. Lying behind this fundamental article of faith is a much greater lesson. It's not just about Moshe Rabbeinu. It's also about never being fooled by the false piety of those who purport to represent God and to only wish for the greater good of the people when the truth is that they seek greatness for themselves and to control others. Our leaders must always emulate and mirror Moshe Rabbeinu. They must be selfless, tireless in their pursuit of justice and truth and totally impervious to self-interest and personal gain. That is the lesson from Parshas Koirach, and it is a lesson that is not limited to ancient history 
or even recent history because it is a lesson that we must learn and take on board today and a lesson we must all beware of throughout our lives. Well, that concludes our share for today. To those of you listening on SoundCloud, thank you so much for listening. To those of you watching on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. Thank you. Thank you.